Newmarket is a typical Ontario town with a history no different from its neighbors. Or is it? On episode one of Newmarket History, together we look at the life of Sir William Mulock, one of the most famous and accomplished people to come from Newmarket, and an important builder of the country of Canada. Then, the biggest political disaster the town of Newmarket has ever seen. How the plans to build a canal that would connect Newmarket to the world were crushed and how they unfairly damage the reputation of Sir William Mulock. All that and so much more history, now! Newmarket's history is full of influential individuals that not only made a name for themselves, but also for the town. People who were respected throughout the country for their contributions to society and larger-than-life personalities. These words could not be more true than for one of Newmarket's most famous sons, Sir William Mulock. But how does a boy from Old York County go on to become knighted by the Queen, entertain some of the most important people in history at his home, and receive praise from many for his work in building the country of Canada? For what reasons were a local high school and road in Newmarket named after him? As we will quickly learn in this series, it all started in Newmarket. Born in the early 1840s, Mulock moved to Newmarket as a young child after the death of his father. His mother was part of an established family in Newmarket, so it made sense for her to return back to the area. While attending the local school in the town, Mulock showed a lot of promise as a young student, but he was easily distracted and his mind tended to wander, perhaps relatable for many listeners. But maybe he was less motivated because there wasn't the allure of an iPad calling his name after he got all his work done. Newmarket's local historian, Richard McLeod, also known as the History Hound, is an expert on Newmarket's past. He is a writer for Newmarket Today and publishes weekly articles about the town's history. He is also able to shed a little more light on Mulock's experiences during school while he was young. I don't think he was a particularly good student, not because he wasn't bright, but because he was like a lot of us. He was just terribly bored. I always started off my presentations by reading a quote from, from his first teacher over on Raglan Street here in, in, in Newmarket. That said, you know, that if Willie would apply himself, uh, he was certain that he might be able to become something. But as it seemed now, he was simply going to be a vagrant, a, a nothing. Mulock eventually left his days of childhood pranks and mischief behind. But first, he was going to have a little fun. In one incident, he built a trench from a septic tank at the school to direct the sewage onto the road implying the town's sewage system was inadequate. When Mulock wanted to make a point, he made sure you understood. He earned a law degree from the University of Toronto and actually did his training in Newmarket, before earning a significant amount of wealth in law in Toronto. 
But it wasn't long before this intelligent, well-connected, renaissance man found his way into politics. The fact he knew everybody also helped him to win a seat in the House of Commons in the early 1880s. And the riding he represented was none other than the riding of North York, which included the Newmarket area, a seat he held for over 20 years. It is at this point where Mulock's list of accolades began to grow. He got into politics, started very briefly as a backbencher, uh, but he was... It seems that they, they, they thought that he had something going for him because they would continue. Every time they would create, and, and the key word is create, a new service for the government, they would put him in charge. So he was our first postmaster uh, general. He was the first director of uh, employment and labor for the federal government. Transportation, he was involved in the building of the, the railroad. I mean, just basically everything. Um, and he served, you know, as you know, for a long, long time. In the late 1890s, Mulock created the Imperial Penny Postage, a fancy term for what is known as the postage stamp. I mean, the reason why he's Sir William is because he invented uh, the postage stamp. So uh, Queen Victoria knighted him for the invention of the postage stamp, which Britain adopted. There also wouldn't be a Ministry of Labor without Mulock. He was very unhappy with how many people were treated in the labor force and worked with future Prime Minister of Canada, William Lyon Mackenzie King, to change things. The two were close, and King famously visited Mulock, his mentor, for breakfast on his 100th birthday. The relationship is also why Mackenzie King ran as an MP in Newmarket and won so Newmarket can say it was represented by a future Prime Minister of Canada. King would also be quoted as saying that Mulock will be remembered as being among the fundamental architects of Canada. Certainly high praise. But politics and sewage systems were not the only areas where Mulock had an impact. You may have heard of a little school called the University of Toronto. Well, he helped create that as well. U of T was a bunch of smaller schools of different religions, until Mulock made the call to combine them. U of T used to be about six or seven individual schools, all different religions. He amalgamated them. He created the University of Toronto. You know, it's amazing. He got the Church of England to sit down with the, with the Roman Catholics and, and, and talk them into amalgamating the different colleges. So, because he, he thought that was the only way they were going to be world class. Mulock sat on the board of directors at UFT and became a chancellor after that. He also had a passion for science, and often sponsored new scientific ideas. It was his idea to create Conant Labs, which, before closing in the 1980s, was considered one of the best labs in the world. This same passion is what also led him to cross paths with some very famous scientists. Banting and Best, the creators of insulin, worked at Conant Labs and U of T because Mulock was a family friend. The inventor of the radio, Marconi, visited Mulock in his home once as well. But Mulock didn't just talk science or have a casual interest. He was known to get his hands dirty, as evidenced by the, shall we say, science experiments he performed on the Newmarket sewage system all those years ago. He was crossing animals when nobody was crossing animals. He was crossing genomes of, of plants and, and food when nobody was doing that. And he was offering, you know, uh, you know, people who were into that, his property to do that. 
Bulock did much of his entertaining and experiments on his property, located on the northwest corner of Mulock Street and Young Street. He bought the property as a summer home and built a gorgeous house on it. The house was filled with old books, a fantastic bar, which I'm sure he used to toast to his many accomplishments, and pictures of many famous people who visited him during his life. One picture, according to the History Hound, features Mulock alongside Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks, two incredibly famous actors in the early onset of film. The large farm property he owned is what partially led to his nickname, Farmer Bill. It was quite common to watch old Billy running around Newmarket doing his errands well into his 90s. You know, you would, you would see him walking down the street in Newmarket and he would have a pair of rubber boots and a farmer's outfit on and an old straw hat and he talked to everybody and everybody called him Farmer Bill. And the getup wasn't just for show. He actually farmed on his property. It wasn't like when a politician on the campaign trail puts on a cowboy hat to appease Western Canada voters. It was always a pleasure to stop and chat with Mulock in town. And since he knew everyone and would talk to everyone, it's no surprise why. Despite a seemingly flawless political career that included many substantial contributions, there does remain one major gaffe on Mulock's resume. But it doesn't come without controversy. At one point, Mulock pushed for Newmarket to become a part of the now-called Trent Severn Waterway by building locks along the Holland River to Lake Simcoe. He had the support of the community, as it would help with both trade and tourism and connect Newmarket to the Great Lakes. The project, often referred to as Mulock's Madness, would become the most expensive project on the construction of the Trent Waterway, and ultimately failed. Remnants of the abandoned project can still be sighted around Newmarket, but would the canal have worked had it not been scrapped due to political reasons? The story of Mulock and the Newmarket Canal is told in the second half of this episode. Mulock lived until the grand old age of 101, which is impressive by today's standards, but even more so when the life expectancy of people born in the mid-1800s was between 40 and 50 years old. If you didn't know who Mulock was on the day of his funeral in 1944, it would be easy to deduce that he was an important person. The loss was a huge one for Newmarket, and the funeral was attended by the whole community with many important and influential people in attendance including the current Prime Minister for the time and five former Prime Ministers carrying his coffin. I like to think about how much Newmarket changed between the years 1843, his birth year, and 1944, the year of his passing. From witnessing advancements in medicine and science to the different fashions of the era to the constant change of Canada's political landscape, he experienced it all. Mulock is one of the very few people to witness Newmarket grow from a small village north of Toronto to one of the largest commercial areas in the province over his century of life. Although much of Mulock's original estate has been sold off, and his name and accomplishments now unknown to many younger Newmarket residents, he did enough to solidify his legacy in the Newmarket history books, and certainly deserves to be remembered today as an individual that played an integral role in the shaping of Newmarket and Canada.
I want to begin the story of the Newmarket Canal and its legacy with a few simple images. Imagine today if you could get on a boat by the old Tannery Mall on Davis Drive and travel up the Holland River, the waterway that runs north of Ferry Lake, all the way to Lake Simcoe. Just think about the possibilities you would have at that point. If you wanted, you could access Montreal by water. Newmarket and Aurora would be the gateway to many of the magnificent waters of Ontario and the tourism draw would be incredible. These images unfortunately never came to reality, and they likely never will. But at the turn of the 20th century, the idea of joining Newmarket to the Trent Severn Waterway via the Holland River was a viable idea, and had the backing of the federal government, only to crumble away for political reasons. This is the story of the Newmarket Canal, or as some call it, the Ghost Canal. In all likelihood, you have walked, run, or cycled next to the historic Newmarket Canal without ever realizing what it is. Maybe you notice the remnants of old swing bridges, locks, and dams, but never really considered why they were built. It's also possible that normally you are so out of breath from your runner jog that you're too occupied to be taking in the scenery around you. I know I am. In my case, I learned about the canal after reading some of the informational signs along the river that provide details of the reasons for its construction and why it was ultimately cancelled. But this story contains too many juicy details to all fit on an informational sign. For those of you that do not know the geography of the area, outside of where the closest Tim Hortons is, please don't feel overwhelmed. Let me give you a quick geography lesson of where the canal runs through. The Newmarket Canal, or at least the proposed route, runs from Lake Simcoe through the east branch of the Holland River. It then roughly follows the Nokita Trail into Newmarket, past the Tannery Mall and parallel to Main Street, before running into Ferry Lake and then going south into Aurora from there. It can easily be found and followed on Google Maps. Before we dive deeper into the Newmarket Canal, first a brief note on the historic Trent Severn Waterway, which links Lake Huron and Lake Ontario. It was constructed for a number of reasons. Mainly, the locks, dams, and canals were put in place for the easier movement of goods to major city centers that would significantly help the economy. Additionally, the discovery of hydroelectric power forced the government to complete the waterway, but it actually is technically not finished. In the 1880s, the Grand Trunk Railway formed a monopoly on all railways in Canada and jacked up their freight rates simply because they could. There was no other competition. Think about it through a more relatable example. Parents know their child needs the car for going out, so they're going to dangle its usage like a carrot to get them to do a few extra chores around the house. Because they can. And because of this rail monopoly, many Canadians demanded the building of canals to find a cheaper option to rail. And government officials like William Mulock also thought that it was a logical idea. What happened was that the, uh, the cost of the rail went skyrocketed. And uh, Newmarket's major uh, industries all depended on the shipping of goods. And so what happened was that they, uh, one of the first people that they got involved when they wanted to look at the possibility of building a canal was Mulock. And Mulock 
like most things, he said, hey, I'll see what I can do. And he was able to convince uh, the federal government to fund it. Mulock was an intelligent man and backed by many elites in the business and financial communities in Toronto. He was also the right-hand man for Prime Minister Wilfrid Laurier in Ontario. As well-connected as he was, he knew that keeping his constituents happy in Newmarket was key to his success. It's why he stayed in power for as long as he did. He believed in the Newmarket Canal project, but also knew the idea could help secure his re-election. It wasn't uncommon for Mulock to champion local Newmarket interests before other towns and cities. Hey, if Newmarket needed something done, like repairs to their train station, they commonly received aid before any other areas. Mulock first presented the idea of this Newmarket Canal, an extension to the Trent Severn Waterway, in 1904. Coincidentally, right before an election. A surveyor concluded that the idea was possible and submitted plans that appeared to be very good. The results divided the canal and its construction into three main sections. The first was an 8km stretch from the south of Lake Simcoe to Holland Landing that really only needed some removal of debris from the bottom of the river. The second section involved the Holland River from Holland Landing to Newmarket and budgeted for some locks, swing bridges, and dams. The final section recommended improvements for the Newmarket Aurora stretch of the canal, which brought the total cost to over $800,000. Not enough for a one-person shoebox condo in Toronto, but surely enough to split the cost of a one-person shoebox condo in Toronto with three other people. But there was one major problem. It was believed there wasn't enough water to make the project work, especially during the summer months. It's kind of hard to have a canal without water, so this issue drove the costs up to include the addition of reservoirs and a pumping system to take water from Lake Simcoe. The small streams that feed into the river north of Newmarket would not be sufficient. Despite this, the project pushed on with construction beginning in 1908 and only added to the already controversial project. Politics can often muddy the waters on what is true and not true, and this is a great example. Many senior engineers, who happened to resent Mulock and also happened to be railway supporters, dismissed the idea of the canal. Laurier's own cabinet actually rejected the idea at first. At one point, the superintendent of the project conspired with members of government to inflate the costs of the canal in order to encourage the government to cancel it. This proved, however, to be unsuccessful. Mulock retired in 1905, and his liberal successor barely won the seat in a by-election. Newmarket was shifting conservative, and that needed to stop. So the liberals pushed on with this controversial project to appease the citizens, despite taking heat for it from the media and other political parties. By 1911, and three years after the first shovels were put in the ground on the canal, the liberal government was dealing with allegations of scandal and the Conservatives under Robert Borden were determined to end the costly canal project that a growing number of people believed wouldn't work. The Conservatives needed some, something to defeat uh, the Liberals. The Liberals were untouchable for a couple of reasons, but one of them being Hulock. And so what they wanted to do is they wanted to come up with some way that they could um, attack Hulock, that Hulock wasn't perfect. I mean, because people were, you know, as you can imagine, you know, as a, a young voter at that time, you know, they're saying, well, okay, you got this, you could, you could go conservative, or you could go with a party that came up with a postage stamp that, that, you know, that, you know, like a thousand different things. So they were looking for some way to attack Mulock. 
We have also now gotten a hold of the minutes from Parliament and the discussion that took place during debates. Borden once stood up in front of Parliament and exclaimed in response to the canal project, as quoted by the history hound, I know it works. I know it's a great idea, but it's Mulak's project and I will not allow it to, to continue. The Conservatives were determined to kill the canal, and after they won the election, that's just what they did. They simply walked away from the project. The idea of connecting Newmarket to the Trent Severn was dead in the water. Many locals were furious with the cancellation, not just because it was embarrassing and amounted to a huge waste of money, but because it was almost completed. Over 80% of the canal was done. By simply abandoning the canal, the Conservatives determined they could save almost $400,000, and that's just what they did. Nearly the entire length of the canal was cleared and straightened, the swing bridges were done, the main components of the locks were done too, they were just missing the lock gates. With a little more time, it would have been fully functioning. A crew was sent in 1924 to clean the area up and make it safe, and quickly the project became a forgotten piece of history. Main structures like the lock near George Richardson Park has been filled in. The lock at Rogers Reservoir has been partially filled in. If you look closely, you can imagine what the structure may have looked like over a century ago. The common belief is that the project is the one blemish on Mulock's career and a disaster for the town of Newmarket. But new information almost a century later suggests that cancelling the project was a mistake. In 2016, the History Hound joined some graduate engineering students who had received a grant from the government during an inspection of the canal to see if it actually would have worked. The conclusion? Without a doubt it would have worked. They squashed the idea of the canal not having enough water to operate. An engineer even pointed out that when the canal was originally built, it kept filling up with water. Certain areas had to be filled in and surrounded with fencing after it was abandoned because it kept filling up with water. The history hound and the engineers were convinced from the reports that the canal would have worked. Now, does that mean the project can be revived? It seems unlikely, especially with our dependence on roads and vehicles. Could a government justify the cost today to finish the waterway and maintain it year in, year out? Again, it seems unlikely. So, did the original engineers in the early 1900s lack the equipment and foresight to determine there was a steady supply of water feeding the canal? Did politics have a role in making sure this information never saw the light of day? We may never know. Perhaps the history of certain events is simply what we're told to believe. Re-examining history provides an entirely new perspective, one without bias or personal connection. A 21st century perspective suggests the cancellation of the canal was short-sighted, political, and stained the reputations of the town of Newmarket and its favorite politician for many years. But like the news cycle, we forget things, or lose interest. And the Newmarket Canal and what it could have done for Newmarket is a forgotten piece of history, further hidden by the trees and weeds that now grow around it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Newmarket History. I would like to send a heartfelt thank you to the History Hound for offering me his time and knowledge during the creation of this project. To learn more about the town's history, check out the Newmarket Public Library's history section, or 
Read the History Hound's weekly articles in New Market today. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time on New Market History.